Welcome everyone to the Greenish Podcast. We're happy to have you all here. First off, we have the one and only Bethany. Say hello, Bethany. Oh, hey. I'm here. <laughs> and we also have Cecily. What's up, Cecily? What's up, guys? Cecily here. And of course, I'm Eland. Uh, but today we have a very, very special guest and we're excited to have them all. We've been chatting with them a little bit before we started, but we'll, we'll really get into the, the meat and the thickness of the episode. So everyone, welcome Peter McCoy. What's up, Peter? Not too much. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> of course, man. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Uh, can you just give an intro of you know who you are, a bit of it, but you're, where you're from maybe, and a bit of your background and your personal mission? Um, well, I am an inhabitant of Earth. Um, I grew up in <laughs> in Oregon, in the Pacific Northwest of the states, Cascadia bioregion, as we lovingly call it around here. Grew up in the outdoors in a lot of different ways, but like everybody I knew, um, was never exposed to through friends, family, or educators fungi. And I only stumbled across the topic of mycology by chance when my brother suggested. I grow edible mushrooms alongside the vegetables I was growing in my family's backyard when I was a teenager. And that was the beginning of falling into a rabbit hole that's taken me 20 years to carry a torch into for, for hopefully some others to follow. Um, what started as just a general interest in fungi, their biology, um, you know, just generally something eclectic and unusual as a kid, really just folded into my personal awareness and paradigm as I got older and learned about pretty much any other social environmental issue, what have you, I would always think about why aren't fungi being mentioned in this thing? It stood out to me, even though nobody else realized there was this missing piece of the conversation. And eventually I started to share that missing uh, connection or point that out more and more. And eventually met some friends that shared that realization or saw what I was saying. And once that kind of conversation gathered steam, that the awareness just kind of putting two and two together that fungi were missing from everything in our life really is what it boils down to something I realized a long time ago. Um, I became quite interested in helping share what I knew about it. And then really as the years have progressed, um, that conversation has just evolved and gone many different directions. And I've learned a lot more and worked in many different ways to elaborate upon it and share it with others. So in many ways, I like to think that to some degree, I'm trying to be, if you will, a, an ambassador to the fungal queendom and just share this knowledge and the beautiful gifts and, and all the things that they do with the world, because just unfortunately where we are in human history and for a number of reasons, most people just know zero about fungi. And that's something I and, and many people and more and more people these days really want to change. Sweet, man. Thanks for that. Yeah, I, I think we could safely say on this podcast that, I mean, I studied wildlife biology in college and I know absolutely nothing about fungi. So <laughs> that's that's a very, very fair point. I don't know about these these lovely ladies if they know much. No, I mean, not in comparison. I feel like everything that I've had to learn, I've had to really dig for or has just honestly been in the last year. And that's only because of a personal interest, not because of anyone bringing it to my attention or learning it in school at all. And Cecily, you're from the area that I now live in, which has quite a bit of mushroom, like visible mushroom life. Some things like I've never seen, the giant white puffballs. What's weird is that it, once you notice mushrooms or inspect them, especially as a kid, it's like they're very curious. And it's odd to me that we don't know more. Or I grew up in Oregon as well. And so understanding them through the lens of food and eating chanterelles on occasion, if you were so lucky to be introduced to them and not just like a pizza topping type of mushrooms, 
it does inspire interest. So it's, it's weird to me that we don't have more formal knowledge around it. And even when you are curious, like I had friends who are into mushroom foraging, but that's kind of as far as the, the knowledge base went in my circle. And, and Peter, what, what is your go-to pizza topping? Before we get into all the the less important stuff, uh, mycological or otherwise, <laughs> I mean it's up to you, partner. It's it's however you're feeling. I mean feta is usually good. Most I mean Sunday tomatoes is really like a line in the sand for a lot of folks, but I go there. Um, as far as, <laughs> as far as the fungi, um, I mean I'm I'm a just a simple oyster, good cooked down, properly cooked oyster mushroom type person. The mm. old cremini buttons. Uh, if you didn't know, they're probably one of the least flavorful mushrooms, even though they're the, one of the most commonly consumed. Um, I don't really like them. Uh, but a lot of the other more common ones in the store, lion's mane, shiitake, oysters, pretty commonly available in North America nowadays. You cook them right, they're pretty much good on anything. All right, now we can get into the less important stuff. In case you didn't know, Peter, Elon <laughs> dabbles in stand-up comedy <laughs> and likes to no, no, no. and likes to treat us with his personality, which we love. That wasn't even that was, that was not comedy. That, that's that was the most important the, part of this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> no, it's so funny that you mentioned that, Bethany, because as a kid, I remember I grew up like in a woods on the river. And I remember playing the drums, like on mushrooms on the trees and stuff. I don't know if they could have been used for something better. But I know that you were self-taught. And I want to know more about, like, obviously, you went beyond what traditional schooling goes through. So I just want to know more about that. Yeah, I mean, it just started with the sort of gardening food connection. And that's, you know, I did that for a couple years in the backyard and moved on to other things as a kid. I've always had many interests at a given time. I, I still have many interests beyond my ecology and my private life. Um, I'm interested in all kinds of things. I'm a constant learner. I've always been an autodidact and uh, knowledge is powerful. And it, obviously the classic phrase knowledge is powerful, but it's also empowering. And the more I learn, the more I realize I don't learn or understand or know about anything. Um, and especially my ecology, it's one of the things that I love about it and what it, why it holds its hooks in me, whereas many other interests have come and gone, is that it, it is the unknown and the mystery of it and that there's so much room to explore and pontificate and ways that you really don't find a lot of other sciences where most everything else has been sort of solved for us and sort of left to us to look up to experts to. It's really one of the fields where we can become um, experts. And for me, I've always been interested in outsider things and eclectic topics, you know, the fringe, the unusual, the taboo, just, that's just what gets me. It's just always been, it's always been the way I rolled. And I guess my ecology, when I came across it as a kid, it wasn't really like, oh, this is weird or unusual. That's what I'm going to do. It, it was actually just a really interesting topic. So, you know, whether or not you're that type of rebellious person or something, I want to do something outsider, really just the science is incredibly fascinating at the same time. And there's a lot of reasons to love it. You know, this is one of the things that I've really discovered over the last couple of decades, talking to so many people and teaching so many people and meeting so many people that love fungi of all different backgrounds. Everybody comes to it for different reasons. And I mean, all of them are valuable and all of them to me are inspiring and add just another dimension to this incredibly multifaceted sort of gem of a science. So when I picked it up, you know, that's, it started there and it became, it was a casual interest as a kid. And just like any other interest I had, I would read books, learn about it where I could pick up a few at the library, but there was only a few. I mean, it really is a, and this is no exaggeration. It's one of the most inaccessible sciences, as you guys just kind of mentioned, it's really hard to learn it. And as the years progressed, you know, I'd pick up whatever books I could. And it was really just here and there that I was gleaning information and sort of cataloging it and pigeonholing different random tidbits I'd discover in this book or that or here and there. But it was all really dispersed. 
And it eventually became to the point where I started to teach. And as you, there's, you know, you learn by teaching. And I started to realize as people would ask me questions, I was realizing where big holes in my knowledge were. And that would lead me to go then do the research and come back to my students or for the next class that have, you know, be better prepared. And that just feeds into my personality of wanting to know and understand. And so it just kind of went further and further and further. And there was nowhere to study this. I, I went to college for some time and did okay. And uh, I took the one mycology class they had, which was a 30-year-old curriculum of how to identify mushrooms and lichens with very little introduction to any other aspect of mycology. But beyond that, I, you know, <laughs> pretty much entirely self-taught and, and had to be. You know, after all the years of sort of gathering so much, meeting so many people, hearing lectures, going to many events, presenting at events, et cetera, I'd built up this catalog of information. And early on in my early 20s, I wrote an introductory pamphlet or zine or booklet, whatever you want to call it, self-published photocopied thing uh, that summarized some of the knowledge I had, but also more of the bigger aspirations of a lot of philosophical type ideas that I had had, how mycology relates to society and sort of what are we doing kind of questions and what does it mean and how can we learn from these organisms. And that pamphlet was called Radical Mycology, that zine. And that eventually led me to writing a book by the same title. And it was really when I started writing the book and really sat down with sort of a stack of books and scientific papers and lots of technical information that, you know, I spent a couple of years really digging through and trying to understand this incredibly de uh, dense science and distill it and make sense of it all and put it all in connections and, and contexts that are relatable for people like me. Our generation, you know, more, more and more doesn't connect with these types of things. And so how do we make them care about something that is so not only awe-inspiring, but critical to the future of the planet? And incredibly beneficial to people now in the environment now. And how can we make it radical? How can we make it cool? I can tell you the facts, but if it doesn't move you, it doesn't make you feel anything, what's the point? I've done various arts throughout my life. And if we're not shaping culture with mycology, you know, we're not really going to change the world. We have to create community around it. So along with the educational thing, a lot of my work with people has been to build what I like to call the mycoculture or a community or a sense of relationship not only with uh, these incredible organisms that are interesting but also other people that share the sentiment and what are the cultural artifacts and what's the language and what are the symbols we can create together or or instill to perpetuate these ideas so that they matter so that they stick um, and don't just become memes and you know passing fads but actually it, it persists and the science doesn't die out which is actually where um, it has been on the sort of tenuous brink of almost dying in academia because there's been such little interest up until just recently. Teaching mycology is just one means to, again, shape culture, open people's eyes, help them see the world in a different way, see themselves in a different way, so that hopefully we, we all, in our own ways, create uh, and discover new paradigms that will lead us out of you know, the different pit holes we might find the world currently in. That's one of the major themes you present right away in your book is that sciences have become extremely specialized. And I think reductionism is the word that you use, which I think a lot of aspects of our culture have followed that model. I was wanting to ask about your book. I love the name. The full title is Radical Mycology, a Treatise on Seeing and Working with Fungi. And I'm looking at it right now. The cover is really beautiful black and white and red, it would be a beautiful coffee table book, but it's not because it's upwards of 700 plus pages. And it has been called the most comprehensive and accessible work on fungi to date. Um, you cover so much history and science and 
even a recipe for reishi beer. I'm really enjoying it, but I did take it literally in the beginning when it said meant to be read cover to cover, but it's actually a really great reference guide as well. When you decided to construct this book, were you just needing a way to kind of compile everything you were touching when you were teaching or I feel like construct might be the right word for this. Yeah. Well, it was built on scaffolding that I had been envisioning for years before I wrote it. And it took a long time. I mean, you know, it it happened when it needed to happen as my understanding and of not only my ecology, but of myself and of lots of different historical lines of thought and, you know, greater contexts. We have to place everything in relationship. Mm. It's really hard for us to see things truly isolated from the world. The world is not isolated. Nothing is truly isolated. Everything connects. Everything's related. And yet science is based on a reductionist model. It's whittling things down to the smallest individual part, mm-hmm. trying to understand the entirety of that individual isolated in a hypothetical universe that will never exist where it lives on its own. And then if we understand that individualness of everything, then we can understand everything. But there's no space there for the relationships between things. Mm-hmm. So this is antithetical to the way that the world works, how ecosystems work, how our bodies work, how everything works. Um, All things are interconnected. This is the primary lesson that fungi teach is that through the work that they do, they connect things. They are the web of the world. And this was one of the first things that really stood out to me really early on before I knew much about anything. Um, As I started to be interested in more global affairs, social issues, the things beyond myself, my early 20s, late teens, uh, I wove in pretty early on my awareness and understanding of mycology and the what the the network of tissue that the fungi grow through the wood and soil known as mycelium does is it branches out and it connects things. And that stood out pretty quickly as a metaphor to me for how human societies are structured and how, you know, if we were all better connected, then perhaps we'd be as resilient and mirroring of natural systems as possible. So that was a one of these connections, some kind of going back to what you were pointing out that I learned early on. And what sort of guided my work initially was just more of the bigger picture. These abstract ideas really inspired me personally. But probably one of the next big kickstarts for me and sort of the next boost um, was the realization that through cultivation and what I like to say, uh, working with fungi and putting them into our lives and into the environment to make to actively change the world and actually make it a better place, not just talk about it. And this is one of the things I really love about mycology is it's a solutions-oriented approach to resolving some of the issues of today. Rather than just pointing out the problems, mycology provides many, many, many answers and really strong solutions and really unprecedented solutions because uh, we honestly just haven't tried them or put them to global scales or large community scales because the science is so young. And so it's this was when that realization, like, hey, actually, we can. That's cool to abstractly think about it. I'm still, I'm still into that. But how do we actually get these skills that are so beneficial in the hands of more and more people where they really need to be? There's so much more to explore. You know, a lot of people come into the world of mycology either typically through, of course, psychedelic mushrooms or psychoactive fungi, uh, cultivation for food medicine or, you know, starting a little farm or something, um, or through foraging. They're already out in the woods or they like the idea of free food or they like just the taste of wild mushrooms and they're so expensive they want to give them themselves. Those are your three most common entries, maybe the medicinal mushrooms more and more nowadays. And whatever your inroad is, it's all great for me. You know, I, I like all of them, but I, ideally, hopefully you keep digging and you'll find all these connections, all these other aspects of mycology, which really reaches across history, time, space, ecosystems, um, and seemingly every strata of the atmosphere um, down to the bottom of the ocean. And so as I learned those things and, you know, just kind of 
eventually started traveling around the continent um, to some degree internationally to teach. Um, it became very increasingly apparent in, some, in every every interaction. Um, not only did were people excited and wanted to learn this stuff, that it was there was a desperate need in a lot of ways, maybe not desperate, but a great great desire for people to, to to get this information. Here and there, you might have the one or two local you know, mycology people, mushroom people, whatever. In tw- 2011, I started doing a large event with some some friends called the Radical Mycology Convergence, where on one hand, we were emphasizing teaching skills and bringing people together to teach us stuff, while very clearly and strongly emphasizing this notion of we need to build a community around this. We need to support each other, encourage each other, because especially at the time, um, nowadays it's more popular, but, you know, roughly 10 years ago, it wasn't. And so a lot of our work then was trying to just break down that taboo and now that that has been, you know, largely done by many people and the word has gone out, internet's helped and things like that. It's not so much about opening your eyes. It's just like, how can we, how can I best share this information? Uh, the book was a big step. Um, I like to think of it as a good bit of a reference book. I mean, you can open it up to any uh, section and dive in and just read a little short bit. Um, I suggest reading cover to cover, but you don't actually have to. But regardless, you know, it's just, it's touching the tips of basically a bunch of icebergs. Uh, just to get everybody up to speed. And so there were all sort of many people on the same page, especially those that are the most interested, so that then the, the, the next wave of education and understanding is not just me and a small number of people, but but many people. And that's always been my my great goal uh, since the beginning of the radical ecology work is is trying to build up um, this this groundswell. That's, I mean, you, you kind of talked about it, and that's, I mean, I for, I would say for most of us, our knowledge is on, on fungi is, you know, minuscule or zero at best compared to, you know, their physical and geographic presence um, and kind of roles. Could you go over some of the common functions that, you know, people use mushrooms for, whether that be medicinally or um, I, I saw something that said, you know, some mushrooms have even been used as pesticides. So can you just go over like a very intro level for, for people listening and myself? Yeah, definitely. So first step, I think, to understanding the appreciating fungi, mycology. So mycology is a study of fungal biology, just all fungi, just like botany is a study of plants. And in the world of fungi, we have the macro fungi, the mushrooms and the lichens, the visible to the eye, macroscopic organisms we can see, interact with, touch, etc. And we also have a lot of microfungi, molds and yeast that are more delicate, small, sometimes quite microscopic. And they're all doing interesting stuff. You know, again, most people, of course, are most familiar with the mushrooms for a lot of reasons, but they all do a number of things. So starting with the mushrooms, how far back into history do you want to go? We, you know, it's hard to say when humans first started even eating mushrooms. The oldest evidence is from almost 19,000 years ago, likely was much older than that. How long have humans understood mushrooms to be beneficial for your health? Very unknown. I mean, we date some of the best records to um, Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, but likely the knowledge may have been inherited to some degree there, as I speculated in my book. Um, and of course, ultimately, we just don't know. We have to go back to the oldest written record, but this could be you know, very ancient knowledge, right? Just as with so many things. Um, so there's the, the consumption there. And nowadays, we not only legitimize the consumption of mushrooms, uh, through the cultivation of roughly 30 edible species worldwide, but really about six industrial, sort of really large scale. And those are picked primarily because they're easy to cultivate and they have good shelf life for transport, for food production. But there's a lot of others we could grow. They're not as good um, for those reasons. And then there's the wild mushrooms that are still foraged. They're expensive because they have to be handpicked and we can't cultivate them indoors because they're associating with plants in the wild, but they're also great for us and for the environment. 
And a lot of the same edibles are also nourishing for our body, really medicinal. It's actually kind of really unlike a lot of our common vegetables, where most vegetables maybe they have some vitamins and things, but they're not so powerhouse full of nutrients. A lot of medicinal plants are really bitter and not really good foods, whereas a lot of medicinal uh, mushrooms are also quite edible, quite gourmet and delicious. So it's a nice double whammy there. And by medicinal, it's a big topic, but in general, a lot of these fungi have sugars that stimulate our immune system, basically give our immune system a little bit of a workout without stressing it out and kind of keep it exercised. And or they have compounds that help with inflammation and maybe soothe some any number of disorders in the body kind of depends on the mushroom. So there's there's good benefit there. There's a lot of research there. So those are some of the most traditional and probably the most historic means of interacting with mushrooms. Nowadays, there's all kinds of applications. So there's the cultivation of that on greater and greater scales and on all kinds of budgets. And then there's other applications of cultivating. So what we cultivate is not the mushroom initially, we have to get the the structure below that, the mycelium. And that mycelium is a network of tissue. And we can grow that into shapes we find nowadays. We can replace packaging materials. We could we all hope someday build a house out of mycelium, you know, growing on sawdust or other uh, debris and things like this. This is one of these pioneering sort of Wild West territories of uh, future applied mycology, as we call it. So really exciting stuff there. So I'll just kind of leave it there. That's the biggest picture of the mushrooms, um, simply put. With lichens, not as much history. Most lichens got a lot of chemicals in them, not so good for consumption. We have bits and pieces from Native Americans and different traditional cultures over in, in Asia and other parts. Uh, they're very much less studied and have less recorded use. And then on the uh, microfungi end of things, it's actually almost a bigger conversation, uh, surprisingly to many folks. The, the microfungi, the molds and the yeast, they're actually the, the, almost some of the craziest chemists of the fungal world. You know, of course, our famous penicillin, a lot of our antibiotics, that's a mold. You know, we think about, you can think about it that the mushroom puts a lot of energy into forming the mushroom and a lot of resources into creating this basically this giant temple that's only designed ostensibly to spread its spores and to reproduce. And then it dies a few days later. It's like an apple. It doesn't, that's not the real organism. Uh, the tree and the, everything else is the mycelium below. Whereas molds, they don't form this big old thing. They put all their work in just kind of eating and growing and spreading. And they're really good at that. And they've survived for a really long time doing that with a lot of chemistry and defense mechanisms and antibiotics. So there's some of the most important chemicals and compounds and economic significance of fungi comes from molds. Ethanol is produced by yeast. So we drink that, but we also uh, burn a lot of it around the world to power industries and vehicles. Mm -hmm. um, and right alongside ethanol is citric acid. All the citric acid in your food is not squeezed out of citrus somewhere. It's actually produced by a, a, a mold. A lot of uh, pharmaceuticals, fatty acids, the things that are put into your detergent to cut out the fats in your clothes um, or brighten your whites, that's a lot of fungal enzymes. And these are all industrially you know, harvested. It's not as romantic, but it's a huge part of modern society is actually fungal chemistry. Wow. That's crazy. So, is it, I mean, these are just, I mean, just touching on, on, on tips of uh, icebergs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm I'm kind of like on the inside in that I would have thought of penicillin brewing. Like I thought these were abstract. I was not thinking about my whitest white to my laundry. But yeah, okay, interesting. So it's kind of everywhere. Yeah. And the fermentation is a good point too, because I mean, that's of course also one of our most historic practices that we know of around the world of humans is preservation of food through fermentation. And even things with sauerkraut where there's primarily bacteria. There's always going to be yeast and other fungi involved, so we always got to give them a shout out. 
Um, and then we have traditionally fungi dominant ferments like tempeh and soy sauce is created and miso is created heavily through fungi and there's other more unusual ones and then all fermented drinks yeah well even like i was just drinking kombucha and the scoby that's inside of the container you're making is i know that's some sort of like bacteria or fungi or something isn't it yeah those are called a symbiotic community of bacteria and yeast so there's dozens of dozens of bacteria and yeast but um and they're all kind of like one produces one sort of exudate or waste product and then the other thing eats it and they're all working together and we get kombucha at the end of it. And okay. you get that with um, kefir also is done with, so these are called scobies, these symbiotic communities. Yeah. Uh, with kombucha, it's a big sort of disc, uh, mm-hmm. pancake. With kefir, it's a different shaped thing. It kind of looks like, I don't know, gobstoppers or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. We used to joke all the time about my mom's scoby, and she'd want to give us like one of her scobies, and we're like, "No, you got to keep it. We don't want it. Gross." <laughs> I mean, nowadays, see, see, well, that's another application. I mean, people are candying us kombucha scobies because if you ever make kombucha, you'll know you just get more yeah. and more of these, yeah. these discs, these mothers, There's, and so people much, can- yeah. candy it. People have made uh, jackets out of it because once you dry it, it basically comes it's really like tough, like kind of like a type of like leatherish yeah. material. Oh my gosh, I'll have to tell her because she was like always trying to push her scobies on us. And we were like, no, we just want your kombucha. We don't want don't to wait. make it too. Do the work. <laughs> we don't want your scoby. It's conflicting when you have like a really thick scoby and you've been oh, she you know, fostering one. its well-being <laughs> and then you don't know what to do with it. And I don't know if you've ever had it like kind of turn, you have to dispose of it. I never knew what to do, like bury it. It feels like a little too weird <laughs> in the garbage disposal. You're like, this is a living. It's not a child. You can it just depends how you look at it. it. It depends how you look at it. And it's called a mother, so that makes it weird too. <laughs> it's true. It's true. You seem to promote the term or use the term citizen scientist, and I I like the way that kind of inspires me at least to look at the world a little bit differently or look at this subject matter a little bit differently because I think we tend to think of a scientist as something you are or you aren't and formal education and degrees are obviously important but as kids we all start out like little scientists observing the world around us and making hypotheses and testing our theories going through like a paleontologist phase for a lot of kids and eventually we kind of stop doing that looking at the world as something to be discovered, um, we lose that perspective. And I just, I like that you're promoting it and treating the word scientist as something more inviting. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not the type of person that really likes to put labels on myself, you know, it's, I think it's self-imposed limitations. And technically, you know, people wouldn't say that I'm truly a professional mycologist because I don't have uh, uh, letters after my name from some institution. So, you know, take that for what you will. Um, Unlike most sciences, though, however, the amateur mycologist is accepted much more readily because we need more hands on deck to to understand the science. There's so much we don't know and not enough people doing it and next to zero funding relative to most other sciences to expand mycology that even though we have folks like myself and many others who don't have technically formal trainings or degrees, uh, there's not only space to contribute greatly and significantly to the science, but a lot of uh, open open doors and open arms um, by the professionals and, and people that 
have been so embedded in, and laid the foundation of the science for decades, kind of the, the giants whose shoulders we stand on, you know, they're also sort of lifting us up with their arms at, their, at the same time. Uh, you know, for me, I take a lot of inspiration from, you know, eclectic minds of, of history. Some of the greatest minds of history are, are, you know, very eclectic personalities we see in retrospect, people that were often wide ranging thinkers that were poets and artists and also scientists and innovators and inventors, um, because they had the time and the space to think, um, the, maybe the solitude and especially not, uh, somebody standing above them, pointing down at them, telling them who and what they are. And that's the greatest detriment we we inflict on children through the enforced education systems and the really artificial PhD system that was created in Prussia as a form of social control is this notion of somebody else is always going to be smarter than you and that you can't be smart. So it's I'm proud to say I dropped out of high school and college, you know, got where I am by learning and just doing things and and doing what I think I should do and just trying to do what's right. And uh, it's never been easy. Uh, for a lot of reasons, but it's been worthwhile, you know, and I, when I look back in the future, I'll be proud of what I did. And, and I did it because, uh, I felt compelled and wanted to, you know, and it was, I had my own original ideas. And I think it's the most profound thing is to have an original idea and to be able to share it. It's such a gift. I'm a kooky guy and I got kooky ideas and people want to hear that. I mean, that's amazing. And, you know, I don't want to waste your time or your money if you're paying me to do that. Uh, I want to honor that and hopefully inspire and change your life in just an hour or, or a couple couple days if we're working together. Um, you know, that's some of my most life-changing knowledge that I've gleaned has been through random podcast interviews with great minds or old recordings of lectures by some of the most brilliant people of history. I mean, yeah, and as I said earlier, you know, knowledge is super powerful and I like to talk, you know, and I like to write. And so, you know, it kind of made sense to just put two and two together and to try to, um, spread out what they historically called, you know, the, the, the great conversation, you know, which is the line of knowledge throughout all of history. And there's been so many voices and all of us contribute to that conversation. Some voices are louder than others. And, you know, it's, it's a mycelial web of, of knowledge that, that connects us all and expands and adapts and to, to be able to contribute to that and, and support it, make it more resilient um, and make sure that it doesn't die out, especially nowadays with all the censoring and stuff going on, which is totally crazy. Um, you know, it just makes even more sense to be a sort of uh, unusual voice in the the wilderness of increasingly narrowed corridor of thought. It seems like we need people to have more of a base level understanding in order to ask the right questions when we encounter a problem. Maybe we could seek out a new application or try something different if we if we even know enough to ask the question. Something that I I'm learning while reading your book early on, you talk about the way that that mycelium or mycorrhizal fungi actually communicate with plant life. And it's something like 95% of all plant life or a high number allows mushroom spores to grow and to kind of be absorbed into their roots and to exchange information. While mushrooms don't use photosynthesis, that means that they need sugar and that's something that they can get from a plant. And so for something like a period of 14 days, I'm sure I'm getting the science a little bit off here, but bear with me. The spore can kind of glom onto the root, be absorbed, and then to share information about what nutrients are available or to make more nutrients bioavailable in the soil for the plant in exchange for that sugar, 
But I was really struck by the literal and scientific way that they are communicating and sharing information and connecting. It was just so mind blowing. Yeah. Uh, well, whether whether in the soil through mycorrhizal relationships um, or inside of plants or inside of us, fungi live inside of. Uh, we now think 100% of all plants living throughout the entirety of plants. Uh, they're definitely in our bodies. Um, what they're doing there, we know so little about, but it's probably very critical. Uh, I would I would hypothesize that they're inside of every single other animal, but we just haven't looked inside of every single group for the fungi there and studied that that community. Fungi are ubiquitous. They're they're everywhere in the world, and they're doing all kinds of stuff. I think not only to uh, enable their survival, but really this is a big part of my paradigm and how I see fungi is the phrase that I like to use is um, seeing them as the sculptors and designers of our world through all their relationships, everything they do, um, enables the health of not just their partner, whether it's a mycorrhizal root partner. So like you were saying, yeah, they, they can sort of wrap around the root tips and maybe go into the root structure and sort of really form this in, intimate relationship there where nutrients flow both ways between the two. Uh, that's a really important function in the environment. 90, 95, probably most likely nearly 100% of all plants have or can form some sort of fungal relationship on their root that's beneficial. Um, but it really goes beyond beyond that. I mean, it's we start there with those are some of the relationships we just better studied over the last just handful of decades since we started looking. But if we take what we see as a pattern there of almost everywhere you find fungi interacting with an organism, there's benefit to that other organism. And I'm just going to take that as a given. We extrapolate that and we say, well, then not only, you know, should we wonder about the fungi in us, but how can we maybe get the right community of fungi in our body? How can we maybe help, um, you know, as land tenders and, and land managers steward and, and sculpt the the fungi in the world around us and, and the places we inhabit to support all the other trees and animals and insects and the soil organisms and everything. This is a big part of the whole you know, uh, mycological revolution is just not only how can it benefit me, can I eat it kind of question, but like you were saying earlier, having this uh, awareness, asking those harder questions, you know, I like to just come at mycology with a big, what if, you know, what if this, what if this, let's think about the most outlandish idea related to anything related to mycology and just say, what if, cause it's fun, but it's also great with mycology because in a lot of ways we can't, you know, kind of depending on the, 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 the what if statement, uh, you might not be able to disprove it because we know so little. So that makes it interesting. Um, and at the same time, if that what if actually played out to be true, you know, what does that mean? I mean, I'm being a bit vague, but it's some of the fun and games we, we can have in mycology. It's where I, some of the places that go in my book um, to, you know, go out on a limb. We need to do that more. We need to have those fringe ideas. We need to just, you know, realize that we don't know everything and that there is some unknown potential. And fungi remind us that when we study these ecological relationships, when we, you know, almost, I, you know, without getting too detailed, you know, without um, sort of losing folks, get into the weeds with it all. It's just almost everywhere you look. And this is what I, I love as a teacher and just trying to point out, you know, my book and elsewhere is just whatever you're interested in, uh, how fungi relate to that. If, if you like animals, if you got a house pet, you know, fungi are going to be influencing their body. If you like plants in any way, fungi are super critical to plants almost on every level. Um, and to understand that, you know, even on a cursory sort of introductory level i think is just a big game changer it sort of opened your mind to me it makes me think that really we have always talked about the flora and fauna these are the big things we can see the animals and plants they're the ones that dominate the world rule the world well there's also the fungi they're the other huge group of organisms of the planet many of which we don't see 
and really in a lot of ways they're at the bottom of the foundation rather of of natural cycles and the connectors and loop closers of most natural cycles and if you look back in the uh likely evolution of fungi it seems that they came almost at the beginning of life on earth after the bacteria and in essence even though you might not have heard this before it seems that animals and plants descended from fungi so they're our greatest ancestors they were here first. They sculpted the land. They built the soils that enabled plants to grow through their decomposition. I mean, it's a lot of different ways you can look at it to be a little bit odd uh, or in awe rather. And, you know, re reassess your assumptions, if if not give a, a nod to these, these things that uh, unfortunately we just don't get told enough about. It's an interesting way to put it with, I understood them to be soil builders and like clo loop closers. That all makes sense. And I just hadn't really thought about them being one of the very first um, or just not looking at them as the predecessor to animal life, but it does kind it's of make foundation. sense. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's a topic I, I actually, um, it's one of my, there's uh, several topics uh, of mycology sort of sub aspects um, that are most fascinating to me in this paleo mycology is one the evolution the the history of ancient fungi um it's a topic i touch a bit on in uh the third chapter of my book um but there's there's actually a lot more to it than i get into there um it's it's a really fascinating topic and one that you're really not going to hear most places it's uh it just paints a whole new paradigm i mean the, even though it seemed you know billions of years ago in the swirling mist of of time you know it doesn't really matter but when you kind of, for me, when you put it together, it's like, well, if they came first and they kind of sculpted everything and then they're, they're everywhere now and they're doing everything all around us in every ecosystem, that kind of says a lot. You know, maybe we should sort of pay attention more to them, right? Um, that's just me, maybe. <laughs> for context, like uh, the number of species, you said there's something like 30 that we can eat, which actually, ha after reading about the total number of species that is known and potentially not known 30 doesn't seem like that much that's just what we have known and labeled as edible but probably well, much more are edible there, or is that there's kind several of... hundred um i forget the numbers off the top of my head i think they approximate roughly ten thousand just mushrooms species in the world if i'm not mistaken and probably about a couple hundred are going to be worthwhile edibles there's a lot of species that you know, basically don't taste like anything or they're like survival, you know, sustenance and protein, but they maybe don't even taste good. Um, certainly mm -hmm. a small number that will make you quite sick. And then a very, very small number that will actually kill you. Um, there's many more deadly poisonous plants than there are deadly poisonous mushroom species in the world. Um, but as far as, you know, really good, to, you want to okay. eat it kind of wild mushrooms, just a couple hundred in the world, or at least North America, I kind of found the numbers off the top of my head. The 30, that, that comes from uh, what are commonly cultivated globally. So a lot of the edible mushrooms, they only grow in the wild and they have to grow in tree associations. They form this mycorrhizal root uh, association that we, we cannot mimic in the, in, even in a farm or nursery uh, because the soil dynamics are really complex. The mushrooms we grow are the decomposers. So we feed them, depending on the mushroom, sawdust or wheat straw or coffee grounds or chicken manure, simple organic residues and wastes that the mushroom just eats. That's its natural ability or sort of uh, ecological niche. And a couple months later, pops out some mushrooms. So out of the many that we would want to cultivate, only a small number are pretty easy to cultivate. And even out of them, for a number of, you know, sort of economic reasons, just 
less than 10 are the most commonly cultivated. Yeah, which unfortunately is the case with so much of our food system is just the attempt to simplify because of ease and scalability. I have a mushroom guy here who I have been in the last year, like exposed to so many more kinds of mushrooms just because, you know, I found like this amazing dude at the farmer's market. Now I'm casually like throwing Namiko mushrooms on everything. And people are like, what are these? The texture is so good. They're so beautiful. And I'm just, I've gotten really spoiled, but lion's mane, Namikos, Papinos. And yeah, I've kind of was thinking like, if I've never even heard of five of the mushrooms I'm now ordering regularly, how many more are there that I've just never had the opportunity to try? Yeah, everything you just said just sounded made up. Agreed. Yeah, I haven't had a lot of those either. <laughs> There's a lot of ways that you can uh, incorporate all these skills that I just touched on from, you know, as simple as just starting to eat more mushrooms, learn the names of them, get familiar, support your local mushroom farmer at the farmer's market. These are great ways to build a local economy, build demand so that in not too many years, this sort of a more of a micro, micro community, micro culture, local food, local resource management that mycology mushroom cultivation can provide is better supported, which leads ultimately to greater resiliency in the local community and resiliency for the individuals. In the immediate, in the, in the here and now, there's the health benefits you can get from consuming good edibles. I mean, a great one if you're just totally new to it is lion's mane is skyrocketing in popularity because it's it's really easy to grow. You can even get DIY grow kits, you know, from other growers and fruit at your home in your kitchen and kind of check that out, which is pretty fun. Peter, I know that you work with a startup called MycoCycle that is developing a method for dealing with toxic construction waste specifically. And from what I understand, that is what's making up a majority of what's going into our landfills and cannot be recycled. So do you think you could tell us all a little bit more about micro-remediation generally? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, a big step beyond kind of cultivation or sort of consumption stuff is the whole micro-remediation field. And this is one of these other big cutting-edge aspects of applied mycology. You know, next to the can we build a house out of mycelium is the can we break down the toxins and the pollutants and the plastics of the world through the powerhouse uh, degradation and decomposition abilities of macro and micro fungi. And so this is a super young science that started a few decades ago and has been looked at in the lab by researchers all around the world with the conclusion that many fungi, molds, and mushrooms both decomposer mushrooms and mycorrhizal tree associating mushrooms can break down all kinds of chemicals. And some of the more familiar ones, dioxins, PCBs, PAHs, lots of others, even TNT, different types of fungi are better than others at breaking them down in the lab. Um, so it's pretty, pretty amazing. You know, bacteria can't do it based on the, the chemistry of the molecules, but fungi, because what they do by and large is kickstart all decomposition they're able to break down these, these chemicals. That's an incredibly fascinating topic. The, the current challenge there, the way that people can get involved or support it is spreading the word about it. Um, but also, if you're really interested in it, is watch a YouTube video I made a bunch of years ago in my kitchen showing how I grew oyster mushrooms on used cigarette filters. And used cigarette filters are full of lots of toxins when you smoke. Just burning anything organic actually creates toxins, whether or not it's the cigarette um, but of course there's lots of other chemicals there and this the, the filter becomes a sponge for that 
And when that goes in the environment, it gets leached out to the to those creeks and everything. But mushrooms, oyster mushrooms especially, will grow on those chemicals and eat them eat them up. And you can just do that on your porch with your smoking jar and feed it to a mushroom or something. Show your friends. Um, and if you really want to get sciency, you you have to pay a little money and have a lab test the chemicals before and after, and you can actually see the numbers go down. But that that can cost a little bit. So that's that's microremediation on your on your porch. Um, Right now, one of the things I'm involved in is working with a, a startup company, MycoCycle, where we're trying to take this notion to a massive industrial scale in a way that's never been done before, looking at some of the most landfill-producing waste streams in the world, specifically demolition materials. Cigarette butts, cigarette filters are the most polluted things by individual humans, but sort of industrially, uh, land uh, demolition materials is the, is the biggest polluter, and especially roofing materials that are impregnated with asphalt. And through initial uh, pilot studies and stuff that I've done, we've been able to show that mushrooms can break down uh, roofing materials. And so a lot of our work there is looking at sort of tackling the demolition uh, industry with micromediation and seeing what we can do there. And that, that lot is promising on that end. Uh, but also looking at a lot of other industries that are, you know, sleepers. You know, we don't talk about... We, Probably generally, we know that industry produces waste, but really the amount of waste, I, my jaw is dropped with all these conversations with how much you know scrap that they can't use or whatever that is, is just the leftovers from them making this nasty product. Even that alone is a huge amount of waste. And so there's and there's lots of potential there to to sort of treat it at the point source before it goes landfill, before it goes out to the rivers and streams. But it can be also as simple as incorporating fungi into your garden. I mean, this there's big and small ways to do that. There's soil inoculum. There's ways to bring in mycorrhizal fungi um, to your to your vegetables if you're planting an orchard you probably have to inoculate with some mycorrhizal fungi um, this is increasingly com more common knowledge in most nurseries and things and right there you're bringing in fungi building up soil health to me that is a regenerative um, healthy ecosystem system building foundational step that really anybody can do and is incredibly beneficial when you say inoculate for people who don't aren't familiar with that term you mean you're adding like spores to the root system when you plant, or what does that mean? It's just a technical term for saying, throw some fungi at it. In this example, you know, inoculating your uh, garden with mycorrhizal fungi, the product you're probably going to buy from the nursery store is going to be the the spores of these mushrooms, probably diluted and either just like, you know, peat moss or uh, bentonite clay, sort of just to dilute it because you don't need a lot of the spores. And you just sprinkle that and follow the instructions, really simple. Maybe you make a little slurry with some water and dip your roots in that or something before you plant it. So that just it's a technical term, old holdover, um, where it just means introduce the fungus to the food thing. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, just another like common step in use that most people aren't aware of where fungi is a part of planting an orchard or lots of commercial scaled. I mean, around here in Oregon, I mean, we have, you know, timber industries, um, one of the longer standing ones. And all the Doug fir and Western hemlock that they plan out for, for timber has to be inoculated with mycorrhizal fungi or the trees will die. They, they've evolved to depend on these fungi for nutrient acquisition to get their nutrients to their roots. So most people aren't growing orchards or especially, you know, timber forests and things, but um, that's just an awareness you can have. But again, your annual vegetables, um, more and more there's an amendments, inoculant, whatever you want to call it there. You know, another really great introductory skill, just one of the simplest, one of the great go-tos, just if you're totally green to mushrooms, it's one of the one of the easiest methods, especially if you have a little bit of garden space or a shady spot in your yard. 
this is the great thing about mushrooms. You grow them where you can't really grow most plants. The shadier, moister, under the porch, you know, kind of areas. Um, this is mushroom habitat. Um, but that's to grow the garden mushroom or the garden giant or the king strafaria or queen strafaria. And this is one of the easiest mushrooms to grow outdoors. It's fast growing, prolific. It'll grow on fresh wood chips or old composty stuff. Um, it'll travel all around the yard and random mushrooms pop up here and there and they can get dinner plate size. It's it's a really fun and, and easy mushroom. And um, a lot of folks are providing it online with instructions to to try to throw it into your, to your backyard. That's dope. And Peter, what, what was the mushroom you said um, that a lot of people are, it's increasing now? Yeah, lion's mane. In the bigger picture, though, I wanted to ask, so you've written the book and you've been working on a lot of things since then, including um, a fungi film festival. So there's artistic element. Obviously, you mentioned the radical mycology convergence. So in-person gatherings and events and educational opportunities. You're working on an online platform for mycology as um, it's like a somewhat more formalized education path for people. What I like about what you're doing there from what I've seen is that you're creating something that is accessible to anyone and everyone outside of people who are already in school or who are who are pursuing a particular career or field, kind of making it approachable for anyone. Is that kind of the goal? Yeah. I mean, all of the above. Um, I mean, it's kind of, as I said it before, you know, it's just, it's all an evolution of my initial interest in seeing my, seeing mycology, fungi as these great teachers and trying to mirror that and trying to be an ambassador to that wisdom that I've gained so much from. And, and it comes through many different forms. I mean, if I had a million arms and never slept, I'd do a lot more with it. Um, you know, the art and the culture aspect is huge. If we don't have that, all the science and the education, it just, it only, it's going to die off. We got to have the reasons to care about these things, you know, and we only do that, especially nowadays, we're so distracted. The Rack Mycology Convergence does that in various ways. It's a very intentional event. There's a lot of education. It's super fun and a lot of thought and a bit of ceremony and things like that to really to center it and to ground it and to put it in a, to put it into a place uh, for people to be. Um, so yeah, the in-personness of that is so critical that we, we we're not going to be doing, we didn't do an online version, even though we were going to do, we do it every other year and we had a skip last year. Um, and you know, I, I sort of refused to do it online. It just, it's not the same event. In lieu of that, we did the fungi film festival, the world's f- first film festival dedicated yeah. to fungi last year, which turned out to be, uh, total success you know me and the other people working on it not sure how many people would contribute ended up having to turn away tons of people all over the world incredible short filmmakers tons of fun mostly young people really just pouring out you know all kinds of creative ideas and relationships to fungi so it was just really fun to curate um and so that's going to become a new annual tradition whereas the convergence every other year because it's so much work but the fungi film fest is a bit easier and, and tons of fun so people can go to fungifilmfest.com and check that one out. Um, right now, the the fest is up for like rental or touring, sort of digital touring. So there's options there. People can see at the website. Uh, the Convergence is at radicalmycologyconvergence.com. Right now, we just sort of have the placeholder. Um, we are looking to hopefully try to do this year what we couldn't do last year. So just join the email list and check that out. Um, at radicalmycology.com, the website has been in one of those we're rebuilding states because 
personally, there's a lot that I'm working on and it's sort of all revolving and everything's coalescing in a million different ways. But uh, radical mycology is going to sort of come into a new evolutionary stage of its own. Uh, our, our earlier work was to try to advocate for mycology and de-tabooify it. That's been done. Um, now what's next is to build more community and culture. Um, the Convergence does it in person and Radical Mycology as an organization, sort of radicalmycology.com will do it in a lot of other ways, um, in new ways. So folks can sort of stay tuned for that. We have an email list there. And then Michael Logos is my mycology school. And that was kickstarted by, I believe, over nearly 700 backers to put out a bunch of online courses and also when doable, a lot more in-person courses I used to teach, as I said, all around the continent. Um, right now, we have a few introductory classes, and uh, we've got a whole new level of stuff coming, but everything's been dramatically delayed. Personally, incredibly excited for everything to, I think, come to fruition in hopefully the next few months, finally, after quite a lot of work and waiting. So for folks that are new to my work, you can kind of see where things are at, but definitely if you're an email list or if you're a social media type person, just find us in those places um, to stay tuned for what's to come. And then MycoCycle, uh, I'm also heavily involved in as the mycologist steering that ship is, is uh, Joanne Rodriguez. And she's uh, sort of, she's boss lady uh, in a good way. Um, and she's really taken that and really understands industry and big business and all this kind of stuff. And, is there any other way to be a boss lady? Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> um, it's always in a good way. So that's, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you can go to mycocycle.com. And right now we have a, a crowdfunder, um, sort of a, it's actually people can invest in it. So it's actually different than normal Kickstarter and stuff like that, where actually you throw some money at us. And then if things work out, you will be like an investor and you'll get returns and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's a different model, big business type of vibe, but it's cool. It's going to, it's really helping us out. It's going to get this off the ground. And so, you know, you can contribute in large and small ways over on the, the website's called Start Engine for that. And I love that you're able to present the big picture and like the things you're doing with MycoCycle and all of these different really hopeful endeavors um, for our planet, but then also be able to bring it down to like the smaller scope of like what we can individually do. Because like, I feel like that's super obtainable and something a good place to start on a personal level. So I appreciate that. I mean, that's, that's my yeah message of the fungi. I like to use the phrase, the message from the mycelium or the, even the message is the mycelium, you know, it's like, uh, but really, it's. It, I think to have an interest in mycology and just be open-minded about it is like actually a huge step. Like that sounds maybe simple or something, but it's it is true based on right everything I just said. It was just helping spread awareness, starting with yourself. Hey, I listened to this podcast yesterday. It's kind of crazy. I heard this stuff about fungi, right? Butterfly effect that spreads out. That's really where we're at with with this. Just getting getting that ground level um, cognition around it is so critical. Whatever you want to do on top of that trying new mushrooms at the farmer's market, that's a huge step forward, right? You're supporting that farmer. Like I said, that's going to ripple out in a lot of ways. Um, and then, you know, it's a huge step to get into even like trying to grow them or do this stuff. You know, that's, I understand that's whole new territory for folks, but the opportunities out there, it's getting easier than ever before. I mean, that's one of my other, hopefully the biggest takeaway, uh, you know, that you can, that the listener can get from this is just, uh, there's never been a better time to get involved in mycology. It's never been easier. It's never been more supported. And uh, you won't be more, you have, you wouldn't have been as supported any other time in human history trying to understand this topic than you will nowadays. So even if you're going in, you know, totally blind, there's lots of people on the internet, Facebook, just super happy to get you up to speed and help you out. So um, 
whatever I've touched on or, you know, anybody out there finds in their own, you know, discovery, um, there's a bunch of other people. There's more and more every day also interested. So, you know, whereas I grew up sort of being the only person I knew, um, no longer the case. And whatever you want to contribute to that on all the different arenas, all the different aspects of mycology, I thank you for it, you know, and hopefully someday I learned something from, from you. Fingers crossed. Maybe. Probably not, but <laughs> maybe something. That's exciting. Thank you so much for taking a Friday evening to hang out yeah. with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me and give me a space to go on. <laughs> um, yeah, I look, for, I look forward to, to being back and hopefully folks listening learn something new. Hopefully next time they're outside see things slightly slightly differently yeah go look in the shade thank you peter it was so nice to meet you and to learn from you and um all the things right on have a good night y'all thanks again take care bye hey thanks for listening we really appreciate it we have some great links in our show notes And if you'd like to leave us a review, that would be amazing. We're still pretty new to this, so every review helps. Greenish is a podcast produced by Be Alive Studios with original music by Devin Anderson. This episode was produced by Bethany Scully, Cecily Krieger, Elon Stribling, and myself, Caitlin Lovell. Again, thanks for listening. Until next time.